Hello, and welcome to the No Man's Land podcast. Patriotism has had a bad reputation in recent years. COVID-19 will have many effects, but one could be the impact it has on how we see each other and our country. So, the week after St George's Day, we welcome Professor John Denham to discuss patriotism, English identity and politics. John, welcome. Would you please introduce yourself and your work with the Centre for English Identity and Politics? Yes, uh, I'm now Professor John Denham. I was for a long time a, a Labour Member of Parliament and from time to time a Minister under the last Labour government. But since I left Parliament in 2015, I've developed the work of the Centre for English Identity and Politics, uh, which is now at Southampton University. And the reason for doing it is that over the past 20 years, the political salience of national identity in our politics has become ever more important. And I'm interested in that in general, what it is and why there's a connection between how people say they, they describe themselves in terms of their national identity and the political choices they make. And I have a particular interest in English identity and its political political salience. Um, there's a real par- paradox. England and the English are barely talked about in our national political debate. We obviously have no national political institutions. People usually say Britain when they mean England. And yet our entire politics has been reshaped, particularly over the last 10 years, um, in England, in the UK and in Europe. So we are leaving the European Union, largely because of the votes of people who emphasise their English identity. Boris Johnson's uh, big election victory in 2019 was achieved almost exclusively. His majority came from people who identify as more English than British. So there's a paradox. Our politics has been reshaped by the politics associated with English identity, and yet we still don't talk about England or the English. So I'm I'm interested both in what's going on amongst people who feel English and people who feel British, but also what it is about our political system, our media system, that actually keeps England and the English out of the national political debate. Great. Thank you very much, John. Uh, Steve, welcome. You were very keen to talk about this topic on the podcast. Can you tell us why? Uh, Yes, of course. Um, So the tagline for our podcast is not dug into political trenches. Um, And in in line with that, we've often talked about the different substantive issues that divide people um, in the UK. Um, And that was particularly true when it came to Brexit. However, in those conversations, I felt we kept coming back to the fact that differences were not so much rooted in issues themselves, but were more to do with the kind of cultural, emotional and totemic factors behind them. Um, So I think we've been missing somewhat a discussion of national culture and values that might make us, uh, might help us make sense of some of the divides. Um, Particularly when we come to this question, we've come to a few times of how you might bring people together to make a broader church. So I was very interested in this topic for those reasons. Okay, let's start with patriotism and English identity. John, I'm going to come to you first. Who are the English? Right. Well, let's let's start with the basic picture, which often surprises people about people who live in England. I mean, if you're from outside England, you probably talk about the English as though it's everybody who lives in England. But actually, our identities are more complicated than that. Most people who live in England, 90 percent of them will happily place themselves on a scale that runs at one end from I'm English, not British. At the other end, I'm British, not English. And between that, you get sort of more English than British, equally English and British and so on. So there's a spread across that scale of how people identify measure or or talk about their national identity. And what you find when you do that sort of survey is that about 30% of the people who live in England say, in one way or another, they are more English than British. About 40% say they're equally English and British, and about 20% say they're more British than English. Um, That in itself usually surprises people. If you talk to people on the left or people who are in London, who tend to think that they are British, not English, and everybody else must be the same, and everybody else is 
is in some way uh, a bit odd if they're English. Actually, the country leans towards its English identity more than it leans towards its British identity. Um, so that's the first thing. When I talk about the people who are English, I'm primarily in this conversation talking about the people who are more English than British and to some extent the people who are equally English and British. So between them, about 70% of the population of England. I think the, there are two ways of, of looking then at who those English people are. One would be in terms of demographics. The second is in terms of how they view the world. So let's just start with demographics, then come back a bit on how they look at the world. Demographically, they tend to be uh, somewhat older, although plenty of young people are more English than British. They tend to be somewhat more working class. They live in greater concentrations or in greater proportion of the population in villages, towns, smaller cities than they do in the big metropolitan cities or the um, more prosperous city centres of places like Manchester or Leeds. They are somewhat less likely to have been, to ha to have been educated to university level. Um, in some ways, quite a broad statement, you could say that they're more likely to be people and um, live in places that have seen economic and social demographic change go against their interests over the past 30 years or so. I don't use lang language like left behind or that sort of thing, but these are places, these are not the places that have been at the cutting edge of booming economies, new opportunities in the global economy over that period of time. So it's that group of people that I think are, are, are particularly interesting. Thanks, John. Uh, Steve, why has patriotism received such a bad rap and got such a bad reputation in recent years why has it become so strongly linked to the right to the far right and the, the more modern outright well i think the first thing to say actually is of course that this is perhaps not a brand new thing um i was reading uh, george orwell's essay uh, england your england the other day first and uh, george's day and uh, that was in 1941 that he did the famous quote, which was England's perhaps not the only, perhaps the only great country whose intellectuals are ashamed of their identity. So it sounds like these conversations have been going on for quite a while. Um, that said, I think there are a couple of points of conventional wisdom, at least, um, around why patriotism got such a bad rep recently. Um, I think the story goes something like that uh, the difference of experience between the so-called kind of metropolitans often called metropolitan liberal elites and things like that. Um, and on the other hand, the kind of more communitarians who um, uh, are generally perceived to be uh, more rural and more northern, um, that their difference of experience um, has, has sort of led to some of these perceptions, particularly with the sort of metropolitans looking down somewhat at the, um, uh, the patriotism of the communitarians. Um, so the story then goes on that this has sort of led to a an opportunity for the likes of Nigel Farage to kind of whip up resentment and uh, exacerbate some of these divides, um, which in further makes the, you know, makes people look further down on patriotism and associated with things like being anti-immigrant racist and the rest. I don't really have evidence to how much that's true, but I certainly think that's the kind of conventional wisdom story for why it's got a bad reputation. So, John, people often talk of, about reviving patriotism as a their progressive political idea. We've heard these terms like civic patriotism, progressive patriotism, and even uh, the term that you use, which is optimistic patriotism. So what do all of these terms mean? Can you reclaim patriotism from the, the right? It seems like a lot of people think that you can't. Well, what's really interesting is the whole framing of the assumption behind your, your question that patriotism is a problem. Um, if you look at the available evidence, both on English identity and British identity, about 60% of people who live in England say they are proud of being English. 60% uh, say they're proud of being British. Obviously, that's sometimes the same people. They're proud of being both. You've got some who are indifferent. The number of people who are not proud of their national identity is around one in 10. So the really interesting question is, is why is that 
10% of the population that doesn't have a national pride so insistent that patriotism is a problem and it's associated with the far right. What you've actually got is the very noisy voices of a small minority insisting that patriotism is odd. The vast majority, well, the great majority of people, clear majority of people living in England, don't have a problem with patriotism. And unless you're going to try and tell me that 60% of the people who live in England are fascists or the far right or neo-Nazis, you've got to say it's the people who keep saying patriotism that is a, is a, is a problem are the problem. Now, if you go beyond that, you say, let's dig a bit more into these ideas. I think there's a, three things that really come out. One is this group of people that aren't patriotic they believe they are far more typical of the population than the population as a whole. So they assert their own prejudices against the majority of people in the country. The second thing is an idea has grown up um, that patriotism is necessarily ethnically exclusive. Now, of course, that is not true. And all the evidence is that both understandings of British identity and English identity have been becoming steadily more inclusive over past years and past decades. But there's a group of people who they start by saying that patriotism must be ethnically, must be related to an ethnically exclusive uh, idea of national identity. And therefore, if you are patriotic, you're going to be a racist. Now, there's a complete logical flaw in that argument, but that is often how it is constructed, uh, particularly amongst the middle-class left who don't want to be accused of being racist, and sometimes by some activists within BAME communities who also, if you like, see that as a way of asserting a different type of identity that doesn't have to take into account historic identities within this country. So there are issues of race associated with it. But in general, it is just a misnomer to say that most people have a problem with patriotism. A small minority of people have a problem with patriotism. Now, if I go beyond that, you talk about patriotism, a progressive idea. It is obviously true that ideas of national identity and of patriotism can be contested. And they are contested. And that's not surprising because many of the traditional identities that people took for granted, uh, for example, working class communities with strong workplaces, with unions, with good jobs, those older working class identities have gone. And so people turn to identities of people, nation and place. And clearly, and this is undoubtedly true, right-wing politicians have moved in there to try to define a form of patriotism that goes with the right. Generally speaking, the left has simply walked away from the debate and said, no, you can have patriotism, you know, and then you can try and define it in a racial way and in an ethnically exclusive way and in an authoritarian way. But that only happens because people on the left refuse to accept this as a legitimate area of discussion. I would see progressive patriotism as framing left politics in terms of the interests of the great majority in the nation. And that is how the Swedish Social Democrats did it historically. That's how the Attlee government did it after the Second World War. Indeed, it's very hard to find a left of centre government anywhere in the world that has not based it on a progressive idea of nation. So I just want to come in very quickly, but I know Steve wants to ask a question. If it's not ethnic, then what is it? Is it just the case of we happen to be in this same place at this same time? We live our lives next door to each other. We go to work together. And therefore, we are a, a unit, a nation, a group of people together. If it's not ethnic then isn't it so open that it's kind of meaningless? No, well, there's two things. Um, the debate gets confused because in common parlance, race and ethnicity get used interchangeably, uh, which, of course, is actually wrong. Um, race relates to a specific set of physical characteristics. Ethnicity properly is much more about culture, uh, belonging, stories and histories and so on. So you can have an ethnic identity, a sense of identity, or if like to, to cut away from the terms, a shared set of stories that do not belong simply to people 
of race. Now, against that is often posed the idea of civic identity. Sometimes people use that when all they mean is I don't want a tub-thumping nationalism. But again, strictly speaking, a civic national identity purely means an identity based on the idea of a shared legal citizenship, which is what you are touching on there. And that, of course, doesn't give you a national story at all. It is simply, I happen to have the same passport as you, but beyond that, there's nothing that draws us together. And the difficulty about that is that is far too thin an idea to build a sense of nation and national interest. So the challenge we've got here in funny ways, it's twofold. One is you have got a set of people, the people who feel most English, who are excluded from the national story very often. But also we have to understand that in a diverse nation like ours, um, traditional ideas of Englishness cannot be the complete national story. We have to have national stories that actually belong to everyone here. Now, this is where I think you can... Um, that's controversially, look at history, and this is, of course, a history of the Union, and it's a history of empire, and actually say, well, look, the one thing we've all got in common is we're primarily here because of England's history, and that is, includes a history of exploitation and empire, but that is why we have the diversity we do. So we ought to be able to tell a story. That includes, if you like, long-standing uh, English families who can trace their roots for hundreds of years and people who are relatively recent migrants who are all in this same place and all building a country together because of those shared histories. Now, that is a neglected area of activity, but any progressive patriotism has to start telling the stories that we share. Steve, I know that you wanted to come in. Uh, yes, and um, I, I was hoping uh, John could help me with a bit of a, um, an anecdote of mine. So um, I was thinking about this issue of patriotism being more progressive and, and getting away from some of the negative connotations uh, last week around St George's Day. So I tested some of the um, ideas with some friends of mine in the WhatsApp group, and they were generally people, I think, who are, you'd say on the liberal left. And I've got to say, it was a very hard sell. It really went down badly. They had very, very bad sort of um, opinions of patriotism and any kind of nationalism. Um, and I was going to ask a question back to John and say, so you must you must talk to people on the kind of liberal left who dislike patriotism. What what do you say to them to kind of bring them round to this 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 view that you're um, that you're explaining to us now? Well, I, there are two types of conversations. One is actually, do you realise what a tiny minority you are of the population? Right. So when you say you dislike these things, will you at least? start from an acceptance that most people don't think like you. That's nothing, so there's nothing wrong in feeling the way you do. There's no, there's no must about identity. There's no should. You are entitled to feel the way you do about your identity. But the first thing I ask for is just some acceptance that being against the idea of patriotism or national identity puts you in a small minority of people, even if all the people on Steve's WhatsApp group happen to feel the same way about it. The second thing is that I say, look, it's not that difficult to find the stories that actually bring people together. Um, I, an anecdote of mine a few years ago, um, comparing a St. George's Day festival with a young Sikh councillor in Southampton. Um, I happened to remark in the conversation beforehand that um, my uncle is on the war memorial in Southampton. He was killed on his way to the Far East. And she said, my grandfather was in the Imperial Army in the Far East in the Second World War. Now, what the importance of that, and we used it actually in the, in, in the show, was that something that you could regard just as a history of empire and imperialism and war becomes a shared story of family engagement in war in other words you can tell your stories that bring people together and you don't have to avoid questions about the history of empire the rest of it but by looking for those shared human stories you can find them the third thing i'd say to those people is is actually if you want to build a progressive society um can you do it without an idea of a nation can you do it without the idea of a national 
community? Doesn't the whole idea of any type of social democracy or socialism depend on a collective sense of common interest, a willingness to to work together, a willingness to share things together, a willingness sometimes to sacrifice things together? If that's not going to be a sense of a national community, where is that sense of community going to come from? If we are all individuals, why should a metropolitan graduate in London give a toss for somebody living in Hartlepool? Where does that sense of belonging come from if you don't have a sense of national identity in the national community? So I would then challenge those people and sort of say, if, if they want their politics, which are liberal left, to succeed, they will struggle unless they engage with the idea of building a progressive national community. Thank you very much, John. I, know I want to use the idea of uh, solidarity as the segue into talking about the party politics of this. So the, as someone who's studied the welfare state, it's solidarity that really underpins it. It's that idea of we are um, a group, a community together. And as exactly as you say, why should rich people care about poor people? Why should people who earn lots of money pay their taxes into a uh, social in, uh, protection system that means that people can who earn far less than them can get the same kind of protection, say, at the point of use? And the, the real embodiment of this is the National Health Service, based, of course, as I'm sure John will know, on the experience of Nye Bevan uh, and his sort of local mining community, and they're all putting in, knowing that they as a community, when someone fell ill, they would need to call on a service where they might not necessarily be able to pay at that time. But by all putting in together, then they would be able to pull out or get out when they needed it. And that idea of solidarity really underpins the whole uh, sort of structure of the state that a modern left party uh, tries to put into place. But, John, the Labour Party is failing appallingly to get these people on board. There's a perception that the left, the centre-left, have a terrible problem with patriotism and that Labour Party has been completely unable to yeah. pick up so many people who are English, who would be proud to be English, and, as you touched on earlier on, the people who are identify as English and feel strongly English have a set of political preferences that correlates to their uh, identity. So why is it that the Labour Party has been unable to capture these people? What sort of role does the lack of patriotism play in Labour's electoral woes? Yeah. I think if we... Can, Martin, can I just go back quickly on your point about welfare and the welfare state? Please do. Um, because one of the things about national identities is they convey values. You know, it's, it's, if you like, one way of putting it, how do people like us behave? One of the reasons the National Health Service is so popular, and frankly is popular even when it's not performing that well, when it's been underfunded systematically over the years, is that its fundamental value, we all pay in and it's there, we need it, is to many of us, to most of us, a statement about what sort of people we think we are. It's not just a principle of health service funding. And it's very interesting, I think, to contrast that with, for example, the social security system as it now is, heavily conditional, heavily means-tested, which doesn't have that same collective buy-in. It is both unpopular amongst the people who have to rely on it, and it's also amongst people unpopular about the people who have to pay for it because they're generally not going to get anything from it because it's, I pay it, you know, the, I pay in all my life, it wasn't there when I needed it, which is what a lot of people say when they suddenly have to confront what universal credit is really actually like. So your national, your shared national values actually help determine what sort of political change is possible. And in my view, for example, when it comes to the welfare system, our shared national values push us far more back in the direction of a more universal, less means-tested welfare system than the way the welfare system has been going in the past. So I just make that point because getting our values right, along with national identity, can open doors for the left. I just no, want no. to yeah. say there, John, that uh, we want, we're going to come back to talking about 
COVID-19 and yeah. the, um, the issue around universal credit yeah. is okay. exactly one of the issues that I want to, to get your opinion on for, for exactly the reason that you've just highlighted. Yeah. So, um, okay, we'll come, come back to that. Let me, should, should I deal with the patriotism question? Patriotism and the Labour Party. Why does the Labour Party struggle to speak people's language? There's a whole set of reasons. One is the Labour Party itself is largely made up of the sort of people who are least likely to feel patriotic. So um, they don't automatically empathise with people who are shaking a bucket for help, help for heroes. Uh, to take, you know, an obvious example, if you like. So one of the things is the Labour Party very often can't help giving out a message in what it does that it doesn't feel patriotic. And very, if you like, stupid but symbolic things like not singing the national anthem, you can have as many manifestos as you like, it undermines that sense of uh, patriotic identity. Now, let's just be clear about why this is important. Politics has always been about identity politics in the most fundamental sense of will this party or this candidate stand up for somebody like me? And if I'm somebody that feels patriotic and I see a political leader of any political party who obviously disdains patriotism, you can forget about the policies or the manifestos or your pledges. It's the clearest possible sense that this is not a person like me. And Labour falls down twice over because it does not actually manage to convey an everyday patriotism in the way it talks about things. And secondly, it specifically will not talk about England. So what was our slogan in the run-up to the last general election in Scotland? Rebuilding Scotland. In Wales, rebuilding Wales. In England, rebuilding Britain. So why deliberately not talk to that sector of the electorate that actually identifies probably as British, but also as English too? Why write them out of the conversation? So you've got a twofold problem. One is about patriotism in general, and then specifically about the relationship to England. Can I just now, none, of this, none of this means that if we are more patriotic and talk about England more, people will suddenly flock to the Labour Party. It just means we're in the conversation. We're not having the door shut in our face before we've even started the conversation or talked about policy. Now, is that an issue of comms, the political communication of substituting the word England for in for uh, Britain or is it a matter of party composition it's not just that the right people are putting out the wrong message or is it that the wrong people are there whatever the messaging that the reason that the messaging is a problem and the communications around it is because the people who make up the Labour Party as you sort of t- touched on are just not the kind of people that would feel comfortable or in fact, let me actually rephrase that. They're not the sort of people who come from the communities that they're seeking to represent. I think it's all of those things, basically. I mean, there is a, a failure of communications, but there is also a challenge that quite a lot of Labour Party activists, as well as more senior people, do not feel comfortable with the politics of patriotism in general and that of England in particular. So it's quite a political task. I mean, through a group called the English Labour Network, we've been trying to work on this over recent years. It's quite an uphill struggle. But there are more and more people coming out and right across the party, from Corbynite left to the progress type people, who actually will talk about their own personal English identity. And actually, the people who don't like it also span the Labour Party from progress to the Corbynite left. So the party's split like that, but it's a, it's a long job, and we have to think about how to make that easier for people. There's the famous story of the Stoke Central by-election where um, the Labour campaign, um, which Jack Dromey was overseeing, actually used some simple George Cross um, branding, uh, in that constituency, because it was clearly uh, something where 
England had to be addressed. And the, the anecdotal story, at least, is a group of students from Cambridge who drove all the way to Stoke, which is out of a journey, got there, looked at the leaflets and drove all the way back to Cambridge because they weren't put, prepared to put out leaflets with a St George cross on them. Now, that may be an extreme example, but it's, it is quite, it is a, quite a difficult one. Uh, and you know, one of the things I've done over recent years is go around the country doing Saturday morning workshops. And when the party started saying... Um, we'll have a St George's Day bank holiday. That was quite useful because we could actually get people having a workshop saying, well, if there's going to be an official Labour government St George's Day bank holiday, how are you going to celebrate it? And actually then people found there were ways of celebrating a progressive idea of England that they would be happy with. But it's it's a long job that's ahead of the party. Thanks, John. So, Steve... Is there a link here to how Britain and England see itself, themselves, in the world? Is there a link, an impact then on the foreign policy? So given that these are sort of live issues about how people see themselves, it makes sense that we think about our place in the world, doesn't it? I think it does. Um, and the first thing to say is a kind of a bit of an obvious point, perhaps, um, and it's really about, about leadership normally. And, and, and uh, what, what tends to be um, thrown at, I think, sometimes Labour leaders is that if they are not patriotic, they wouldn't be very good at standing up for Britain on the world stage. And this was talked about a lot in uh, Jeremy Corbyn's reaction to the Skripal poisoning affair. Uh, and that was certainly the narrative around that. So I think that's a very simple point to make. Uh, as you allude to, though, Martin, I think there is a, a, deep, a deeper thing as well. I think if you're... Um, don't have a story to tell about Britain being a force for good in the world, or if you're quite negative about that story, then it, I think it can be hard to project a kind of vision for what Britain should do on the world stage. Uh, and I think it, the impression certainly is that some bits of the left, and maybe John will have more insights here than I do, uh, are quite negative about British history and British values. And it seems to me that some of the foreign policy sort of projection becomes more of an apology and more of an inward-looking thing than it is a kind of positive outward-looking story. I mean, I think that it, it is a real issue, and I think that there's a, a challenge here to tell a better story. You see, I don't want the choice between to be between Jeremy Corbyn and the idea that we've got to invade Iraq every 10 years to show that we've got a, a, a place in the world. Um, I don't want either of those as, as Labour's idea of Britain in the world, whether it's the exceptionalism of believing that we have a historic mission to uh, impose our values irrespective of our knowledge of the circumstances, or to simply assume our country and our allies are always in the wrong, whatever the issue is. But where I think, where I think we need to look more productively, and I think we can learn from, from the failures um, of the, the Remain campaign, was that too much of the argument in favour of Remain was based on the premise that the nation needed to be superseded by an international institution. That was very much the language of the Remain campaign and also particularly after that, worse, of the People's Vote campaign. The argument that actually a strong nation benefited through international cooperation because together we could achieve more than we could do separately was very rarely put and very rarely put in a, an articulate and clear way. And so the opportunity to tell a patriotic story about why we should be a member of the European Union was lost. And so the other side was allowed, if you like, to scoop up patriotism by, by default. So I, I think we have got to articulate a different role of Britain in the world, either from the one that's been traditionally on, on, the, on, 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 on the furthest left, or the one actually that's been traditionally associated with mainstream Labour or the Labour right, which still has any, too many roots in the delusions of imperialism. I think we can deal with our history. We don't have to be triumphalist about our imperial history, nor do we have to say the only thing that defines us is our imperial history. What we can say is the nation we are today has been created by that history and everyone who's been here today is going to be part of our future. Uh, thanks, John. So I just want to ask you a couple more questions 
to get your view on, and these are specifically about Labour. Now, the first question I'm going to ask you is about Labour and Englishness, and then I'm going to ask you a question about Labour that has absolutely nothing to do with Englishness, at least on the surface. So the first question I'm going to ask you is, what claim can Labour have now to represent England when it is really a party of the cities that only one of the seats that Labour lost to the Conservatives in 2019 was in one of the major cities. This is looking in the, the north, so the sort of uh, heartless, former heartland seats, the, the old Red Wall. <clears throat> so the only one that was lost in the northern cities was Birmingham, Northfield. But in Birmingham, in Leeds, Liverpool, Sheffield, Manchester, Newcastle, these places are held by the Labour Party. So how can Labour reconnect with the rest of the country? Well, we have to tell a story of our understanding of their lives that rings true. And that means doing something that we stopped doing 20 years ago. Uh, This is the Red Wall election was only happening to the north of England, what happened in southern England, in Kent, um, in Hampshire, my old seat, in previous general elections where the same people were moving away from Labour. Go back further. The million people who stopped voting between 1997 and 2001 were primarily working class Labour voters. Another four million stopped voting Labour in 2005. Labour was losing its working class base because it wasn't able to articulate all the things that were happening in those communities. It wasn't understanding that the experience of those towns was different to the cities. It wasn't understanding what it felt like to be in a place that used to have high status jobs that no longer did. What it felt like to be in a community that very different to a city when you have sudden and very rapid migration, which disrupts the whole sense of community and knowing the people who are around you. Labour, instead of being able to empathise and understand and engage with those experiences, either ignored them or simply condemned people. So if you said, I'm a bit disconcerted about how rapid immigration is, you are a bad person. So we slammed the door on lots of these people over a long period of time. So the only way to get back now is to find ways of telling stories about what has happened to those communities and what people want now that ring true with them. Uh, That is basically what politics is about. Where we are at the moment, well, we're in COVID-19, but we come back to that in a moment. Where we were after 2019 was that lots of places had finally decided they'd had it with us. We need to understand that. But on the other hand, it looked pretty unlikely that a Conservative government would be able to deliver for people in the way they hoped. So there was still a prospect of getting back in. But if we just sort of pretend we're going to have a radical economic manifesto and everybody will come round to us without telling stories of their lives that they understand as true, we won't reconnect. All right, thanks, John. Now, I just want to sort of expand on this particular um, aspect of what you've said, or two uh, two sort of elements of the the story of what the Labour Party has to to tell. And the first point is one made by Richard Rose, which is that at the next election, Boris Johnson's story of how he owes the NHS his life will probably be more familiar to voters than Labour's constant reliance on, well, we invented and introduced the NHS, which happened before most people were born. So what does the Labour Party have when it can't rely on the NHS? And the Tories have become the uh, party that emphasises the importance of public services. And the second element of the story is that whoever wins the next election will be facing the highest deficit since the Second World War. There might be little fiscal scope for additional spending. Labour doesn't represent the working class, it can't rely on the NHS, and it can't spend lots of money. What's the point of it? What's the story that the Labour Party could then tell running up to a general election to ask people to make it the government? Well, there's lots of 
assumptions in there, but we have to do what I've just been saying. We have to tell a story of this nation and where it's going that rings true to people. Uh, and that means that we have to move beyond the idea of uh, Punch and Judy party politics and it's our turn next. We have to be very clear that the reason it looks tragically as though we're heading for the highest number of deaths, the highest death rate, the highest level of excess deaths in Europe, I hope it isn't true, but that's what the stats look like at the moment, is not just because we had a Tory government. It's about the whole way that England has been governed for a long period of time, including periods of Labour rule. It's because we have been obsessed by centralism. We have disempowered communities. We have brought in the private sector and market mechanisms to do what the state should do properly. It's because we didn't care which companies were owned in this or domiciled in this country anymore. It's because we thought having productive capacity didn't matter. Now, that's actually where people are in this country. They have a sense of a country that has lost its sense of direction. If we go into it thinking our job is simply to say we'll be a bit better at the NHS than the Tories, we will lose and we probably deserve to lose. We need to have a more compelling national story. Now, I think it's, I think it's all to play for, uh, but we have abandoned that territory for 20 years. And if we don't get back on it soon, then we won't come back. Well, that seems like a great segue into COVID-19 and what will eventually be a post-COVID-19 world. So, John, is the experience of going through this together, of all people from all sorts of walks of life, whether working in key jobs where the neighbours looking out for each other. Is this the sort of national experience that helps to forge the new Jerusalem? We don't know, uh, and I don't know. It will have an effect. Um, past history will tell us that the effect is not just what people remembered as happening, but how it's mythologised afterwards. We have plenty of examples from our own country, but we can look across the channel to France and, you know, de Gaulle's reinvention of France as a nation of people who resisted the Nazis to the last man and woman after the Second World War was quite clever, but it wasn't historically true, but it was a powerful idea of national resistance. One of the things that's going to happen here is how will we remember it? Now, these very early days, I would say two things. I think a narrative of we all pulled through together, we all did our bit, is probably going to pave the way to the fastest return for the status quo. Because we're not all in it together in the same way. There is no connection between the life of somebody who's middle class, rather enjoying working from home, got a garden and getting their groceries delivered every week, and somebody and four kids in a tower block let alone those who don't want to go to work because they think it's dangerous. And I just don't just mean the people in the NHS, but in many other jobs, but have to because their work says so or because they can't afford not to. The great myth of saying we're all in it together is that it suggests that all of those inequalities that we're seeing within us somehow were, 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 were put aside as we pulled through. I, I hope we can end up telling a story which is rather more along the lines of the people turned out to be better than the people who govern them. And I don't just mean the Conservatives, our system of government. That actually, and this would be true up until this stage when we're talking, the people did everything that was asked for them and more. The people defied the so-called experts and behavioural psychologists and nudge units who thought they knew how people would behave. People have done exactly what they asked, but the people who govern them have failed to deliver PPE, failed to deliver the testing and failed to look after the most vulnerable. So I hope we can tell a story where there were the people of this nation who actually did do the right things, and that was pretty much across the board, let down by their system of government and the people who governed them. And the second thing we have to say is that there was a moment, a national moment, 
where we agreed that things must never be the same again. And that's what is not being articulated effectively at the moment. It is said on the left and plenty of blogs saying things will never be the same again. But we know how quickly the nurses will be forgotten, the doctors and the care workers will be forgotten, the delivery drivers, all the people who've kept us going. So I think we probably only come out of this better, not as a sort of we were all in it together, but actually as a story of the nation of the majority who were better than the government, and secondly, of a nation who rich and poor made a promise to each other that they would never let things get in this state again. Now, whether that's going to be articulated by whom, I don't know. So, Steve, that seems a good time for you to come in to talk about the public response. So how much do you think the country has come together in this crisis? Well, I think I'll caveat this by saying that I'm probably in the same camp as John to say I don't think we really know how lasting this will be yet. But there certainly seems to be quite a lot of unity at the moment. Um, when we were talking on last week's podcast, I think I mentioned a statistic which is 93% on a YouGov poll. So 93% of people at the moment are supportive of the kind of effort of the government's lockdown, um, which is quite a startling like, figure. And we've certainly seen a lot of um, examples of sort of solidarity among different communities. So we've all been clapping for carers on Thursday evenings. Um, the response to the call for NHS volunteers was quite amazing um, in terms of how many times over that was, um, that the numbers were exceeded. Um, and also, um, as I'm involved in or in touch with, sort of the various community groups seem to be, seem to be popping up all over the place, people trying to help each other. It, it does seem that there's a, a real sense of people in various different ways coming together. Um, but it's only been about a month or so since we've really been uh, experiencing this. And uh, I think with these crises, often you, there's a kind of sense of rallying around the flag, but what comes next is very uncertain. Um, so I think it's too early to say, but there, is, there are some signs, I think, of people coming together for now. OK, so to draw this discussion to a close, starting with you, Steve, what do you think that the leaders do need to do to be able to sort of on one hand, capitalise on the crisis, but on the other hand, um, use, utilise national identity as a way to carry on bringing people together, carry on unifying and forging a sort of national story. Well, I doubt I've got a really sort of compelling overall answer for this. Um, but the thing I think I've taken away from this discussion more broadly is that um, the sort of facts of the case, the facts of this um, pandemic won't necessarily determine how it's remembered or how it's mythologized, as John said. Um, and actually, I was thinking back, we saw something similar to that in the financial crash. I think there was one narrative people thought that the financial crash would show that, um, uh, that the free market had failed and that the kind of uh, great moderation, as, as it called, you know, wasn't actually built on, the, on such certainty that that used to be, and then that would be a opportunity for the left. Well, actually, it turned out very differently. We turned out it turned out to be perceived in this country, at least, as sort of oh, it was too much spending that got us into the into the, into the trouble. When actually, the evidence is for that is very weak. Um, so, my takeaway from this conversation and those kind of examples is that is that actually this could go either way. Um, and so, what what the sort of more progressive and centrist leaders need to do is make sure that they have a narrative that is as kind of emotionally and culturally compelling as the things that will come from the old right, as we talked about earlier. So they need to have something that is going to speak to you more than the kind of things that um, you see from the likes of Farage to kind of blame China stuff, blame globalization, blame immigrant stuff. I, I don't know if I um, um, can quite articulate what that, that is, but I think some of the things John's talking about might be, might be the start of an answer. Absolutely. Now, John, is there anything that you'd like to say to, um, to close the discussion? Well, I, th I think Steve's right, particularly about 2008. And I'm reminded of that every time I read an article saying things will never be the same again. It's exactly what the left told itself in 2008. And the right came out, not just in this country, but around the world, came out with more compelling stories than the left did. So the left this time has to have compelling stories, they, but they have to ring true with people. We can't just say, for example, the current fashionable thing, I've always thought universal basic income is a good idea. So now I'm going to tell everybody that universal basic income is a good idea. We have to uh, conjure up images and ideas that speak things to people. I mean, I was thinking one last night, this is hardly a national story, but where I live in Winchester, last night the 
Rotary Club's motorised Christmas sleigh, you can just about imagine it, can't you, was coming round collecting boxes, bags of food for the food bank in what is a middle-class part of Winchester. And in a sense, somehow what the politicians have got to do is capture that sort of thing and say, actually, that tells us everything that is great and everything that is wrong about our country in one go. On the one hand, you've got the social solidarity that was determined to ensure that nobody in Winchester would go hungry. But on the other hand, you had this very real possibility, and not just because of COVID-19, that people in Winchester go hungry every day. And I think it's the ability to come up with those very visual things and say, we can never let these happen again. Again, Our vulnerability, we don't go all anti-China, but I don't think there's much of a mood in this country for people to say, let's happily go back to be entirely dependent on sourcing so much of our stuff from the other side of the world and having no supply chain and no manufacturing capacity here. It's those symbolic ideas of how we're going to do things differently in the future that are going to be absolutely critical. So the prize goes to the people who can draw the right lessons for this. The danger is the story in two, three years' time will be we all pulled together, we bore our losses bravely as we did do before, and that's what makes us a great nation. And all of these things that we found out about ourselves get swept about under the carpet. In those circumstances, the rescue packages will all tend to have favoured international companies that don't even pay their taxes here and other people will be back exactly where they started. No, I think that's a very good point. And um, we touched on universal credit earlier. And I wonder whether we might see a change in the way that things like universal credit are perceived. That in the past, it's maybe been the case that people think people who are see themselves less likely to need things like universal credit will think, well, I work hard, I'm deserving, you know, I'd never come to let myself get into that position rather than those sort of wasters who are on it when they don't really need it. Of course, it should be set at a punitive level when actually a lot of people will have seen their jobs disappear overnight through no fault of their own. And then you contrast that with someone like a Richard Branson calling for a bailout for his um, Virgin Airways, given his multi-billion pound fortune, his private island, and as you very rightly touch on, John, a number of large organisations that make a very good profit who do not pay all the tax that they should do in a more, uh, if they were to show a bit more solidarity. So, um we shall see where all of this goes. But, John, thank you for an absolutely fascinating discussion that's been... Thank so you, Martin. Really enjoyed it. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thank you, thank you Steve. Thank you very much, Steve. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much to everyone and anyone who has listened to this. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have been part of it. Um, this has been the No Man's Land podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. <laughs>